0: Hello. Thank you for tuning in to episode 17 of Innovation Activists Designing Healthcare's Future. This also will be the first time we do a Zoom cast of Innovation Activists and have it posted on YouTube. My very special guest today is Dr. Melissa McFeeters. Dr. McFeeters is a public health expert an epidemiologist and all around brainiac who understands people data, public health. Dr. McPheeters has been, for me, the single most helpful expert regarding COVID and any other public health matter. Uh, she has a, a ton of experience working in different sectors uh, from being a, uh, a really successful scientist to spending uh, time as a, a speech writer uh, for a dean of a, of a major medical school. She's worked with two separate CDC directors. Have you ever directly Worked with Dr. Fauci. Oh no. <laughs> okay. Well, well, that that Thanks, I'm sure Fauci. will be added to her her resume. She had a stint also working for the state of uh, Tennessee uh, in terms of public health, and uh, so all these different places she's worked allows her to feel comfortable very much staying out of one lane. Really honored to have you today, Dr. McPhears. And can we start off by just learning a little bit? How did you get interested in public health in the first place?
1: Sure. Thank you so much for having me today. This is so fun. I love your podcast. Um, so I actually started my life in my career as a writer. Um, I have a degree in in English with an emphasis on, on professional writing and wanted to be in the health space and got a job as a medical writer for an organization that did international uh, public health, particularly around reproductive health, and really fell in love with the science but also never lost that love of the communication piece. Uh, so that's really, that's what pulled me in was this desire and this ability to explain complicated stuff. And I knew I had to understand the complicated stuff. So I went and got my public health training, but the goal was always to figure out what to do with it.
0: When you were younger, did, did you envision yourself Involved with healthcare? Or did you envision yourself, you know, as a, as a writer doing fiction? How did you end up? making that transition?
1: Yeah, both. So I wanted to be a pediatrician when I was in high school. um, And that was after I had wanted to be an English teacher. So definitely both of those desires were always there. In college, I found out that I didn't really want to necessarily go to medical school uh, and ended up with my degree in writing because I loved to write. But I always loved health. And, you know, back in the day when I was studying in undergrad, public health wasn't something I knew was an option. And so it wasn't until I got out um, for a couple of years and realized that there's this whole arena of health and healthcare and the public's health that isn't just about being a doctor or a nurse. All the other pieces are there too. And that's when I discovered public health.
0: Got it. Got it. And, you know, we... Uh, we all know with, with the, the, the pandemic, uh, everything has, uh, has changed for us. And, and for uh, me in, in practice, this is the first podcast that, of innovation activists that we've done during the pandemic. It's just been, it's been the whole wild and crazy uh, time. How has the, the pandemic, from your perspective, elevated the role of public health?
1: Oh, boy. Well, it is a public health crisis, isn't it? Um, absolutely. this It's been really interesting, uh, challenging, um, sometimes overwhelming to be in public health and to be in epidemiology in particular right now with a new pandemic. You, know, you study pandemics, you think about them, you plan for them, but you don't think it's ever actually going to happen. And I think it's been, you know, nobody, I shouldn't say nobody. I think a lot of people didn't understand the role of public health and certainly not of epidemiology until now. And so it has really put both the importance, but also the problems that public health faces front and center. Um, and so I think that's been interesting and is a absolutely an opportunity uh, to think about how we envision public health moving forward.
0: Do you think now the pandemic is is sparking the interest of, of, say, college students to, to enter this field.
1: It is. And we're seeing it in the applications, right? So when we look at applications for medical school, for nursing school, for schools of public health, they're definitely up this year. Um, so I think that's just really exciting. I think this has given lots of people um, new new life, new views on and different ways that they can help to improve their community and their community's health. I think it's great. My own daughter is talking about going into public health now,
0: oh, that's and uh, great. that's a new
1: thing in our family.
0: <laughs> if you were to 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 look back and tell yourself uh, what you know now, what what would you want to tell yourself back in March, March 2020, when the pandemic uh, first started?
1: Ooh, I think I would want to tell myself to get some rest. <laughs> 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 that it's going to be a long marathon but also to know that the community would come together around this. Like there's a lot of dissent out there and there's a lot of hard and difficult stuff. But one of the things that I have had happened out of this is a really renewed connection to my public health community and to my epidemiology com- community and broadening that to include people i didn't necessarily know or understand their work so virologists and vaccinologists and other types of medical uh, professionals that's been actually pretty incredible
0: how do you think that covid and the the, the pandemic has changed our perspectives about innovation in healthcare?
1: Well, I think a couple of things have happened. I mean, I think we can look really concretely at the vaccine development and how fast that seemed to go, even though we know there were years, almost decades of work on coronavirus vaccines happening before. So there's a good platform to start from. But I think that gave people an idea of, hey, wait, we can actually do discovery with rapid turnaround when we have to do it. And that's so incredibly exciting. I think we have seen some incredible gaps that could be filled with innovation. You know, I sit in the public health informatics space. And so I think a lot about the problems that we've experienced with getting data, moving data, e- interpreting data around this pandemic. And that's something we've got to do better. Um, this has just highlighted that there are opportunities there are huge opportunities for innovation and there are innovative things happening, but they're not always connected to the right places. Right. So lots of technology being stood up it isn't fully integrated into the public health system. Well, how can we do better in that space? So I think that's one thing. And then I also think when we look in the healthcare system, I mean, you and I sit in the health system, the ways in which our system adapted quickly to rising patients, patient numbers and specific patient needs and staffing issues, You know, moving people into different positions, physically changing the, the campus so that we can accommodate those patients. Um, you know, we always think that academia moves so slowly, but that was pretty impressive.
0: You're a, a, a professor in the Department of Health Policy at Vanderbilt. You also had done a stint uh, with the Tennessee Department of Health. So when we think about moving slowly, uh, we talk about academics, but what about government? What is that like?
1: You know, government will surprise you. There is an enormous amount of innovation that goes on in government. And the problem seems to be, in from my perspective, inevitably, that because so much of that work is underfunded, it can't really necessarily take root or flourish. So I'll give you some examples. The public health community has been working for a while now on something called electronic case reporting, which is a technology based on electronic health records that um, triggers reports to health departments of potentially reportable diseases in sort of an automated way. So where instead of you, the doctor, knowing that you have to report a reportable condition, whether it's measles or Ebola. It pulls it out of the health record and it sends off the report and says, hey, we think there may be a reportable disease here. And that automation could take an enormous amount of burden off of the health system and off of health departments. They have to come, keep going back and forth to get all the information they need. That technology has been there with public health at the table with the electronic health record companies and others developing the system. It's ready to roll. But where's the funding and where's the incentive and where's the partnership between public health and healthcare to actually implement it? That's what's been missing. So that's why I'm hoping that this pandemic will help us galvanize some of those conversations to say, hey, we could have been in a better place. Let's go do that. So, my experience in public health was that there was an enormous amount of innovation, that these sorts of things were happening and they were growing but they weren't funded enough to really push all the way forward, you know, and, and that the partnerships weren't in place to make sure that they move forward.
0: Is the funding available for, for that right now because of the pandemic?
1: So there is more funding coming into public health. Um, absolutely. Um, there are strings attached to it, as there always are. And challenges, that's the thing. That's where things really move slowly in government is the ability to spend money in an efficient way. Right. So everything, the contracting and the hiring and all that is very, very slow. And so that can really hold things back. But, you know, I'll remind you public health has to be really scrappy, right? Because public health doesn't have a lot of money. And so, what do we say? The uh, that we breed uh, innovation by necessity
0: mm-hmm. <laughs>
1: happens. So I think it's out there. I think if we could build some better partnerships, um, we could do a lot more
0: well you you talked about data and uh data is is uh i think fundamentally it it is a part of uh, of evidence how do you how do you think of evidence and how how are people susceptible one way or another to being nudged by evidence
1: yeah that's such a great question, and I think we are facing that really um a lot in this pandemic. There's a lot of data. One of the things that has happened over the last 11 months, of course, is that new information has been coming out so quickly. So if we look at the number of studies on COVID that have been published and that are being published or put out in preprints every single day, it's completely overwhelming. And I think we get data overwhelmed and then you don't know what you can't interpret it, you don't know what to trust about it. And so I always think that a core part of evidence is actually the communication piece. How do you pull that together in a compelling way that is still true to the science but makes sense to people and doesn't overwhelm them? I used to run the evidence-based practice center at Vanderbilt for about 10 years and that's what we would do is take tens of thousands of articles on a topic and pull them together and weed through them in a way that we could say, okay, here's the really solid science. This is what it means. But that was never enough. You have to be able to then say, and here's what you can do with it. And so sometimes we miss that piece, that science communication piece, and that's where we've got to put a lot more of our energy. I think.
0: One of the things I've been so indebted to you uh, for during the pandemic is your your really practical nature. And I, I might uh, I might ask you a question, and there there aren't you know the randomized control. Studies to to really answer it, and you you might triangulate uh, various bits of of data and make a very concrete recommendation that would be helpful. And so, you seem very comfortable to do that. In other words, not not having all of the data, but having enough to to fundamentally make a judgment. Where did that come from in you? To have that ability. And then how how do we how do we sort of scale that out, even in a post-pandemic world? Because it will just, it'll we'll be able to move faster instead of you know waiting for stuff that doesn't exist or may not ever exist.
1: For sure. You know, I think a lot of it comes from my public health training. Um, one of the principles that we talk about in public health is a precautionary principle where we're, we're going to be really pretty cautious about how we move forward. And sometimes when there aren't enough data to give us that concrete answer, then we have to sort of sit back and think logically about, OK, what is a cautious thing to do that would help us um, to make sure that people are as safe as possible. It's very common in public health um, and in public health data that you don't have a randomized control trial. You don't have that kind of p-value driven data that we like to think that we can rely on in medicine. And so you have to bring into it all these other things. Way like 25 years ago, I wrote a paper with somebody named uh, Jeff Copeland, who was a CDC director uh, previously and is a vice president at Emory right now. And what we did was we wrote about the intersection of public health and policy and politics, and how actually you can't just have one. You have to figure out the right combination to move forward. And so it's not just the public health science, it should be driven by the public health science, but you got to understand the context, you've got to create good policy that we create support and context around something, and you have to have political support in order to, to make things move forward and so things go awry when that gets reversed. And we talked about that in the paper. This was after SARS, and who knew huh. that this was going to be where we were all these years later? But it's really important not just to get stuck in one zone of that, but to really be able to understand what's the context, what are the, um, what's the potential if if we get this wrong, how bad could it be? What's the potential if we get this right? And then putting all that together before you make a decision. It's not just about the data. It also has to be about the application of the data.
0: How do you respond when people say the statement, well, the data speak for themselves? I mean,
1: sometimes they do, right? Like we are really clear at this point in the COVID COVID pandemic about some things. We're really clear that masks work there is just no evidence that they don't. They clearly do. We are really clear that SARS-CoV-2 is what causes the disease we call COVID-19. You know, there are some pieces that are, they are what they are. And you have to be able to rely on science in that way. So sometimes that's absolutely the truth. You still have to communicate that science you still got to communicate it to people in a way that it's not scary, that they can act upon it in a way that actually respects where they are.
0: What do you think are some of the reasons people have difficulty acting on what is absolutely clear evidence?
1: Trust. Trust. I think it comes down to trust. I think that what we're seeing in this pandemic is just a continuation of an erosion of trust in science, in education, in expertise uh, that we had been seeing for a while. And fear. I think people are afraid um, that people actually wish them harm somehow. Uh, so we have to we have to rebuild that trust, and part of that is communicating with people in ways that make sense to them. So the science communication around this pandemic has been fascinating to watch. Talk about innovative! There's been some really great innovative data visualizations and ways of communicating, and then there've been some real misfires too. Um, so, this is something we ought to be looking at. Uh,
0: well, this has been, it's just been a terrific uh, time for us to, to chat. And as always, I learned so much from you, Dr. McFeeders. And uh, my, my question uh, for you and the, the audience is if, uh, you know, what, what would you recommend that we all do next?
1: Wear a mask, wash your hands, watch your distance, which is what I'm always saying. And then I think we've got to think, we've got to stand back and just really look at this issue of trust and how we rebuild trust in one another and empathy that we can use to help people open up to good science. When we figure, it, figure that out, I think we'll go a long way.
0: Is, is there something we can do as individuals, you think, to, to build trust with one another, to build empathy?
1: I think we're going to have to talk to each other. And that's pretty hard right now when we're all home, isn't it? So I think finding ways to actually have conversations um, about science, um, about what it means, and not just ask people, you know, why do you believe this? Or, you know, why don't you believe this? But but how does it make you feel? And how can I understand how this affects you? Um, If we could have some of those conversations, I think that we could learn a lot more about how to communicate about the science better.
0: Uh, well, that th- that's great. Thank you so much, Dr. McFeeters, for joining us today. And listeners, uh, just understanding the the nature of communication, uh, Dr. McFeeters and I are both on Twitter. Please share your thoughts uh, with us about this uh, episode of Innovation Activists: Designing Healthcare's Future. And as as Dr. McFeeters said, please continue to practice safe COVID practices. We we are all in this together. Stay tuned for our next 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 episode of Innovation Activists Designing Healthcare's Future. Thank you.